Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 113. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and we are recording this episode on April 27, 2023. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. This episode is a sidebar, which is our term for an episode that is off the timeline of the history of the Americans, really our way of signaling that the episode need not be listened to in sequence. Today I'm in Austin, Texas, and my guest, Melissa Darby, is in a secure, undisclosed location in Oregon. Melissa is an anthropologist, archaeologist, and historian on the faculty at Portland State University. Long-standing and attentive listeners will remember her as the author of the 2019 book, Thunder Go North, The Hunt for Sir Francis Drake's Fair and Good Bay, which I've now read twice, and which was my primary source for our episode, Novo Albion and Drake's Legacy, which goes back to early December 2021. It wouldn't hurt to listen to or re-listen to that episode before this one, but I don't think it's essential. Another way might be to go back and listen to it after you've heard this interview. Thundergo North is really two books in one. In one respect, it's an argument based on historical documents, anthropology, and linguistic analysis that Sir Francis Drake and his crew careened to the Golden Hind on the coast of Oregon or perhaps Washington in the summer of 1579, not on the coast of California, as has long been claimed by patriotic Californians. As Melissa Darby demonstrates in her book, this is actually an argument that ought to have carried the day more than 100 years ago, when a Mexican-American anthropologist named Zelia Nuttall discovered important new documents describing Drake's famous voyage. The Drake in California myth, however, has persisted so robustly that when California school districts and other authorities went about renaming all things Drake in the last couple of years, nobody bothered to point out that those things were inappropriately named in the first place because Drake didn't land in California. Indeed, this myth is so embedded that when I asked ChatGPT to write a short biography of Drake a few weeks back, it spat out a thousand or so nifty Drake words that emphasized his landing in California. That gets us to the detective story at the heart of Thunder Go North, Melissa Darby's discovery that key Californian historians, including two men who would go on to be presidents of the American Historical Association, actively suppressed Zelia Nuttall's research while she was alive and manufactured Drake's Plate of Brass, a fraudulent artifact that cemented the California legend for more than 40 years after it should have been disproven. In the interview, Melissa and I talk about the documents discovered by two women scholars, the aforementioned Zelia Nuttall and Eva Taylor, around a century ago that upended the evidence for Francis Drake having claimed a Novo Albion in the area of San Francisco. We talk about the ethnographic and linguistic evidence in support of a landing on the coast of Oregon or maybe Washington the plot by a famous University of California historian to manufacture evidence to refute Nuttall's claims and obstruct the publication of her paper. The remarkable point that the crew of the Golden Hind spent between five and ten weeks on the northwest coast 
interacting with Indians routinely without ever having fought with them, and Drake's legacy more generally. Before we get to the interview, which turned out great in substance, you should know that we did have some technical difficulties. We had to switch from Riverside FM to Zoom to get Melissa's microphone to work right. And the good news is that she sounds pretty good in the output. For some reason, though, I sound a bit as though I'm speaking through water, an artifact of some setting I'm sure I didn't do right in Zoom. I hope it isn't too distracting. We'll do better next time. So without further ado, in my best Sam Harris voice, I bring you Melissa Darby. So uh, I bring you today Melissa Darby of Portland State University and the author of Thunder Go North, The Hunt for Sir Francis Drake's Fair and Good Bay. (laughs) Melissa, thank you so much for joining me on this call. How are you? I'm great. It's great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. So maybe for our guests uh, who don't have the benefit of reading the dust cover, you can tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you came to Drake and all the rest of it. Well, I'm an archaeologist and an anthropologist and a historian, and I've worked in Oregon and Washington, mostly doing archaeological work for about 44 years. And I got very interested in culture and history when I was a a foreign exchange student when I was in high school, they sent me to Lebanon and I lived with an Arab family and all around us, there were Roman ruins and the culture was just amazing. And I just got really turned on about uh, studying history and culture. So that's what I did when I, I went to the university and then um, I started uh, an archeology span class and that was it. I just really liked that. And uh, I've been doing that ever since. So maybe you can connect that then to how you came to write a book about Drake. There haven't been too many books written about Drake in the last few years anyway. Here's maybe the most recent I know of. And uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it very much. I've read it twice. So perhaps, <laughs> oh, perhaps you, can, you can bring us to that. Well, um, as a as an archaeologist in Oregon, we, I get requests for um, uh, archaeological testing projects. And this one woman called me and said, hey, I know where Drake's treasure is. OK, first, there's no treasure, but she was sure there was something and she wanted me to come and help her um, excavate that. She needed a permit. Uh, and only archaeologists in Oregon can get permits. So um, I just I kind of wasn't sure what what she was asking. So I said, just send me information about this and I'll look into it. So she sent me a manuscript that was written by Bob Ward, uh, a British citizen who um, was an engineer. He's not a historian at all, but he he came to the conclusion that Drake was on the northwest coast. And this was based on some previous work that other people had done um, in the early 20th century. But he looked at the maps and uh, some of the early accounts of Drake's voyage, and he came to the conclusion that Drake was uh, at Well Cove on the Oregon coast. And, um, you know, he's sure of it. I'm not quite so sure. I'm pretty sure he's right, though. And uh, so I just started 
studying this and going into it. I didn't I didn't end up helping that woman at all. But the story of Drake being on the Oregon coast with all this treasure and his ship was sinking and they needed to fix it. And he met the Native Americans. All that was just, you know, great stuff to get into. So the historical sort of the the long story here is that Drake wasn't on the Northwest coast. He was on the California coast. Um, And that. um, Maybe that's what people think. Yes. Well, but that's uh, not not just, not just people. I actually asked uh, chat GPT to write a short biography of Drake just to see how it would work. And, Chat GBT believes that Drake was in California, but um, as your book spells out, um, that love of Drake in California is probably actually not well founded. That for more than 100 years, there's been a fair amount of evidence that Drake had sailed much further north than originally believed, and therefore careened his ship much further north than originally believed. Perhaps yeah. perhaps you can sort of outline the sort of history of that and uh, how you came to contend with it. Sure. Well, most, most histories of Drake, you read in most of the books of, of his voyage of circumnavigation, said that he, he, um, his ship was leaking. He had just captured a whole bunch of Spanish gold and silver and jewels and uh, por- and Chinese porcelains, and that he was hightailing it north and trying to get away from the Spanish. And he needed a, a bay to careen his, his vessel because, of course, it was leaking and there was no way home except across the Pacific. So it had to have a sound and good vessel to carry him and his crew and his treasure. So most histories tell us he, he landed around San Francisco Bay. They argue which bay around San Francisco, like Bolinas, San Quentin Cove, or Drake's Bay. But they're sure, you know, that these books say he was around there. However, manuscripts from the early 1600s and contemporary accounts brought to light um, by Zelia Nuttall and Eva Taylor and others indicate that Drake careened his vessel and camped in a bay on the northwest coast, not on the California coast. Um, So part of this is because when you sail from the coast of Mexico like he did, you have to go out to sea to catch a wind that'll bring you around in a big circular fashion on on the Pacific gyre. And that those winds and and currents bring you in somewhere around Oregon or Washington. And since he was looking for the Northwest Passage, this this was one part of his secret mission. He was looking for the Northwest Passage, so he would have swung further north. So um, some of these manuscripts mentioned that he was up at 48 degrees north. And um, but the official manuscript put out by Queen Elizabeth and her Privy Council said his highest point on the West Coast was 42, though another version says 43 degrees, which is about the southern Oregon coast. And that he coasted down and then went into San Francisco Bay Area or Drake's Bay and then spent the summer there. But um uh, I believe that the the manuscript accounts and the account by um, 
John Drake in particular, Drake's nephew, who was a page on the voyage, all point to the to the idea that he was further north. So <clears throat> part of the confusion here, um, sort of over the long term, as I understood it, stemmed from the fact that the uh, apart from the loss of some of the original documents, such as Drake's journal and his famous map and Whitehall fire in the 1690s, uh, apart from that loss, uh, there was the separate uh, issue that uh, Elizabeth I had thrown a veil or a uh, cloak of secrecy around uh, the information that Drake brought back. Uh, and um, documents were altered then, uh, and people were not allowed to publish the truth. In fact, they were, as you account, they were sworn to secrecy under penalty of death, which is going to focus the mind, I suppose. Um, so, you know, the, the idea prevailed when you look at those two alternatives Originally landing at say 42 degrees, which is thereabouts the Oregon California border, and heading south from there, that would land you in San Francisco. But understanding then the alteration of these documents and the sort of emerged evidence that we have, Zelia Nuttall and others dug up, that he actually landed at say 48 degrees, which is approximately. Um, you know, Olympic Park, I would say, I would guess. Right. Uh, uh, Cape the, Flattery. Yeah, Cape Flattery. If you head south from there, you end up in the central coast of, of uh, Oregon. So that that was the trade-off. Um, but that story really um, amazingly first emerged, as I understand it, uh, about the beginning of World War One. with Celia Nettles' work. And she found it very difficult to get that published. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the climate among California historians as prevailed 110 years ago or so, and uh, the impact that that had on so, getting this story to the surface. Well, sure. Well, the um, when, when Drake got back to Plymouth, uh, even before he got off his ship, the Queen told the Queen sent a message and said that he was in her bad graces because of what he all the depredations he had done uh, to to the people in of New Spain to the Spanish. And so there was a cloak of secrecy thrown over it. All the sailors were sworn to secrecy on pain of death. And all the uh, and there was no official account for some years, and um, no one could see her as Drake's maps. The Queen kept them under her lock and key. So this this came down through the centuries as sort of a secret. No one knew exactly what what happened because manuscripts weren't available to everybody to read, and and the official account, you know, seemed pretty perfunctory. So. Um, Zelia Nuttall uh, was a uh, one of the first anthropologists in uh, in the in the United States. She had married a French ethnologist, which uh, they were earlier than the American ethnologist and anthropologist, and. Uh, she was just brilliant. She spoke both uh, Spanish and English, and she was doing research in 1908 in the Spanish archives in uh, the colonial archives in Mexico City. And she found a trove of documents about Drake, 
uh, and uh, these were depositions from mayors of towns that he raided and captains of ship who he captured and so forth. And it really painted a picture of Drake that no one had seen before. These were all, you know, in Spanish. And so she translated them and compiled them in her book, um, uh, A New Light on Drake, which was published, I think, in 1912. But she found even more evidence that pointed to the factor, to the idea, to the theory <laughs> that Drake was further north. But she was born in San Francisco um, and she knew that people in, in the Bay Area venerated Drake and he was sort of their hero. And to change that paradigm was going to be tough because she was a woman. She was an anthropologist working in Mexico. And, um, you know, in these times, uh, that was very difficult for a woman to make her way in the world, even though she was quote, unquote, world famous. Newspapers followed her around and reported her doings and what she was up to and so forth. But the um, academic historians of the day, especially at Berkeley, did not like her. And in particular, a guy named Herbert Bolton uh, did not like her and her promulgations uh, that uh, Drake was further north. And so he did everything he could to suppress these ideas that she was bringing out and um, they went to great lengths to, they had, they decided that uh, they were going to counter her, her um, work with a big Drake fet. Uh, and so they had a big uh, Drake festival in I think 1917. And um, that was right when she had finished her second big uh, manuscript on Drake that said he was further North and, and, Herbert Bolton controlled quite a few of the editorial boards and he was very influential and um, he made sure that her words didn't come out and um, he, he, he tantalized her with saying, oh yeah, I'll publish in a year or two, I'll let you publish in my compendium and, and then in the very, the very last moment he said no and then she was, she was flat broke, she had many expenses from writing this book, you know, the second or you know, manuscript of over 100 pages. So she went back to Mexico frustrated, took her ball and bat and went back home and did more research on the Maya and the, the people that she was working on uh, down there as an anthropologist. And um, that's where she lived for the rest of her life. And she died in 1934. And then um, taking up the mantle after that was Eva Taylor, actually even before that in the 1920s into the 30s. And Eva Taylor found even more documents that supported the idea that Drake was further north. She was in England, so she could publish. She wasn't um, susceptible to any sort of press blackout like, like Zelia was. Um, and so she started publishing a diary she found that uh, was by uh, uh, Chaplain Maddox, who was on the follow-up voyage, who said that... Um, uh, that Drake was as far north as 48 degrees and all this bits of information, including a vocabulary list of the natives that Drake encountered that sounded a lot like Chinookan, according to uh, one of the anthropologists. So as soon as she was coming together with all her findings, the Drake played a brass, the land claim, a plaque that uh, allegedly Drake had uh, planted on the coast of 
California came to light and it kind of upended all her theory. And so she was kind of eclipsed by that. And the theory that Drake was on the Northwest coast was totally eclipsed. So um, why don't we park for one side very briefly, the plate of brass. Um, I want to sort of suggest that uh, a summary of these arguments, uh, and um, perhaps you can either contend with them or expand on them. Um, as I understand it, there sort of are three general categories of affirmative argument around the notion that Drake landed on the Oregon coast or maybe even a bit north. The first is historical documentation. We now understand this Elizabethan cloak of secrecy, and we have newer discoveries still going back 100 years or so that shed light on, new light, on the old documents. And, and so that relatively new basis of information points to the Northwest Coast rather than California. And then in addition, bringing in your other two fields, we have um, um, ethnographic evidence, um, which you describe, and uh, linguistic evidence, which you describe in chapters in your book. And, and they all, to some degree or another, make, call it the affirmative case for Drake's Fair and Good Bay being on the Oregon coast. Maybe um, we've talked, I think, about the historical evidence, the documents. Maybe you could touch on the ethnographic evidence for the affirmative case, and then we can swing back and look at the sort of contrary problem, which is the refutation of um, um, uh, the California juggernaut, as you put it. In right. Okay, so when when Drake landed on the coast, wherever it was, um, after three days, a large group of Native Americans came down the trail to meet Drake, um, and they noticed that they, that the king himself was in this group. And Drake called the king the king, and it was just the Native leader. They wouldn't have called him the king. But Drake interpreted this as the king, and that he was surrounded by the king's guard. He's these wonderful Native American men as they presented themselves. They sent up two messengers to, to invite or to talk to Drake. And they they um, they they did a chant and talked for about half an hour to Drake, one in a soft voice and the other in a loud voice. And they said the word heo, heo, several times. So Drake, being the Elizabethan that he was, he interpreted this to mean uh, they're, they're announcing the arrival of their king. So um, Fletcher, his chaplain, dutifully wrote down, the word heo means king in their vocabulary list. <laughs> and um, but when I was looking at this, I looked at uh, some of the words that might be a match in Chinookan. And I had a friend named John Lyon help me. And and we thought um, that the word heo sounds a lot like the word heyu. Heyu in Chinook jargon means uh, uh, formal social gathering. 
So I thought, could it be that Drake met these people and they were saying heo heo, which to them was like, we're inviting you to an important social gathering or a potlatch kind of thing. And uh, Drake thought uh, he, they were announcing their king. So that was one of the words that uh, um, was recorded by Eva Taylor that uh, goes back and um, might be Chinook jargon, which is the trade language of the people on the on the Oregon and Washington coast and in into the interior. Um, also, that some of the ethnographic material that um, I'm sure Zelia figured out, but we don't have her manuscript. It's gone, but I. I think that uh, she figured this out because she went up to um, visit the Macaw at Cape Flattery. Uh, Drake was describing the architecture that these people had, their homes, not their ceremonial houses or anything. They were He was describing the houses they lived in, and he said they were uh, semi-subterranean and covered with planks. And that they were warm like uh, this and, and they were shaped like the scuttle of a ship. Well, um, that really describes Northwest Coast architecture. And I'm an archaeologist and I've dug it uh, and in Native American uh, pit houses up and down the Oregon coast. And this they do seem like a scuttle of a ship. And I think that's what what Drake uh, may have seen. Um, the other thing that they they described is that the king was wearing this mantle of furs that were just beautiful. And only the people around the king could wear this particular fur from this particular animal. And this animal, they said, was was uh, as big as a Cape Hyrax, which is, uh, you know, a, a, a little bigger than a rabbit. And that it had uh, hands like a mole and it had a long bald tail. And uh, the people ate the ate the meat of this an animal as well. And in California, they've been debating this for years, like what animal could it be? And they thought, oh, well, it, this animal that the people were making their their beautiful coats out is is probably a, um, a, a squirrel or it could be um, a little mole or something, you know, and th th that just doesn't fit. If Drake saw a squirrel, he would have said squirrel. Right. They have squirrels yep. in England. So um, sure and uh, some of the people that uh, that promote Drake's Bay, the boosters at Drake's Bay say it was a pocket gopher. But a pocket gopher does have a bald tail, but it's a little short, little bald tail. And so um, looking at that, some of the uh, things that I that that I've studied are uh, what what people ate and uh, in the, the Native American uh, diet included muskrat. So muskrat has a long bald tail, has a beautiful coat. We know that they, uh, the people on the coast, uh, wore a lot of muskrat skin mantles and robes because it was waterproof. And here on the Oregon coast, that's a that's a big deal <laughs> to have something that's waterproof and warm and flea proof. Uh, I've heard from a couple sources that muskrats don't get fleas. I'm not 100% sure that's true, but but um, that would have been a bonus because there was always fleas around here. And even Lewis and Clark mentioned that there was fleas and they were annoying. Um, so we have the faunal evidence, which also includes the fact that Drake saw all these uh, huge fat deer. Well, in Oregon, we have elk that are pretty huge and fat and 
and our he said they were in the thousands and in the Willamette Valley um, they used to be in the thousands and you you know you still see them I mean they're they're all over the the coast range and into the Willamette Valley and so forth but elk are also in California so that doesn't say that it was perfect but but um, that was kind of compelling as well. So the, he, Drake described the basketry, and the basketry fits uh, the descriptions of the basketry made by the Coos people on the southern Oregon coast. Um, and it, it might fit the people on the California coast if you look at it in another way. But um, all these little bits of evidence, these lines of evidence I, I explored, um, you know, the more I found, the more I was like, Gosh, this is this is really compelling. And then the next thing and the next thing. So um, I think the ethnographic evidence and the linguistic evidence uh, added together is is pretty strong that Drake was on the Oregon or California or Oregon or Washington coast and not on the California coast because the architecture of the Miwok and the Pomo people is not uh, plank houses. Okay, so to. Just to summarize, because I talked about some of this uh, in my own uh, podcast episode on the topic, which was back in early December of 2021, but not all of it, uh, just because you can only talk about so much. Mm -hmm. We have we have the historical documents uh, and the uh, evidence uh, uh, surfaced by Zelia Nuttall and Eva Taylor. Uh, it all, some of it before World War One, some of it in the early 1930s, but in all cases pointing to a original landing further north, and then he he traveled south to find a fair and good bay to careen his ship, and we know the distance he traveled, so you sort of get to a starting point, you head south. And, and in the old way of looking at the world, that got you to the San Francisco Bay Area, but the new way, call it, uh, that got you to Oregon. Add to that your work and presumably Zelia Nettles to some degree, although that's lost, so it had to be sort of reconceived. Um, and, and I'm sure there were other scholars in between that uh, you relied upon if we were to dig through your notes. Um, uh, we have uh, anthropological evidence and uh, other such evidence that that points more to Oregon than to Central California or the Bay Area. Um, if I understood all these arguments back and forth, even though there some of it might be stretched to explain um, a California landing too. So we've got all that in favor of an Oregon landing. Um, and yet, um, for really up to the present day, um, the sort of view, the dominant view persists online, not necessarily among experts in the field, but online enough that chat GPT would get it wrong, mm -hmm. uh, that the landing was in California. And in fact, there have been all sorts of things in the Bay Area named after Drake. A bunch of them have been uh, changed in the last two, two and a half years for uh, essentially political reasons, I guess. Um, but um, uh, there are no 
uh, such monuments to Drake high schools and the like in Oregon that I know of anyway, that kind of thing. So, so even though a lot of this evidence has been around for 90 to 100 years, um, it hasn't really made a change in the perception. Okay, so I'm, I'm sort of going on here and summarizing this. And that gets to the California juggernaut, mm-hmm. um, um, which, which I think, uh, as I understood it, comes down to a couple of key points that became, for some reason, a point of California patriotism. One is that Drake was a pirate, not a <laughs> privateer. And the mm-hmm. other is that he landed somewhere in the Bay Area. Um, and can you, in your learning, have, have you figured out why this story became so important to Californians? Well, the voyage wasn't a a piratical adventure. He was on, Drake was on a secret mission for Queen Elizabeth. He had accomplished two of his goals set by Her Majesty, um, explore the West Coast and find lands to claim for England. So the swashbuckling story of Drake and his golden horde and his adventures really resonated with Californians. This was, this was a, a gold rush state. Anything to do with gold was great. Uh, Drake became the golden son of the golden state, celebrated by this organization called the Native Sons of the Golden West, who every year had a ceremony where they raised the flag that Drake carried. And, um, you know, they just really decided to to, um, invest in, you know, uh, creating this myth, this California myth. Uh, they didn't think it was a myth, but they, you know, they created this um, in the early. So, so if I may jump in. Yeah, sure. In my podcast uh, episodes on this, I, I constructed the analogy to sort of the Texan view of the Alamo, uh, which, yes. uh, <laughs> the, you know, the Alamo happened. It has achieved a, a very important um status in called the Texan national consciousness, if we can put it that way. Uh, And and a couple of years ago, there was a book, the title of which I've forgotten, but there was a book written that purported to revise the story of the Alamo. Maybe it wasn't all as it was uh, cracked up to be, and Texans did not react well to this. Uh, So uh, it, it seemed like there might be some some analogy there to make this more intelligible to some of our listeners who are not Californians. Well, the Californian historians aren't taking it very well uh, that Drake might have been out of, not in California at all. It's mostly the booster groups. It's not the professionals, but it's the people who um, still venerate Drake as as the the local hero. you know, the, it's in the early 20th century, the white Protestant elites embraced Drake as a native son because they wanted to play down the, the Spanish history of California. And they um, wanted Drake to be a pirate, not only because he was swashbuckling, but because um, these other uh, manuscripts say that he was actually on an exploring mission for Queen Elizabeth, the secret met the secret uh, expedition and that he was actually further north looking for the Northwest Passage. Well, the 
Californian historians in the early 20th century uh, said that wasn't true or they played it down or whatever, because why would he go all the way from 48 degrees down to San Francisco to repair a ship if his ship was leaking? So some of those things didn't fit. So, oh, no, Drake was a pirate. He wasn't looking for the Northwest Passage. He was on no secret mission. Um, and uh you know, so in California, they they built um, this Celtic stone cross uh, uh, to commemorate the first English language sermon and the Book of Common Prayer uh, on uh, what was now the United States uh, of, at the site where Drake and his crew were thought to have landed. Um, in San Francisco, the park commissioners <laughs> erected this huge monument to Drake. Um, the, it's called the Drake Prayer Book Cross. It's the largest when it was built, it was the largest cross in the world. And I think even today they still have annual, you know, ceremonies uh, at this cross. It's 57 feet high and it's on a pedestal over 17 feet square. I visited it a couple of times and um, it was, uh, you know, at the at the highest point in Golden Gate Park. So this is in an important position. So if Drake was not in California, can you imagine? I mean, they would Californians might be embarrassed that they did all of this stuff. And it, it's sort of heartbreaking for California. It's hard to change the paradigm. And they said, well, we've, you know, when I've talked to a couple of the uh historians, they said, well, we've been studying this for years. And I said, but that's not a that's not an answer, you know. Look at the data. Um, um, so uh, it, the California legend has been really durable because he's 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 sort of their uh, and I don't want to say mascot, but he's their golden boy. So now let's just circle back to the plate of brass, and I'll say what I understand to be the case, and you can straighten me out and 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 elaborate. So. So um, in uh, one of the surviving accounts, Fletcher's maybe, uh, there was this reference that a uh, uh, in the in in during the five to ten weeks they were in the fair in Good Bay, wherever that was, presumably California, in the view of Californians. Um, during that time, Drake claimed it for Elizabeth and tacked up a sort of brass plate, allegedly, that um, had certain characteristics, mentioned Elizabeth, said that this land was New England, Novo Albion, and, uh, and so forth. And um, there had long been the hope uh, that that uh, brass plate might be discovered, and suddenly it was. Uh, and perhaps uh, you can uh, describe the story and then a little bit of the unmasking of it as a hoax, which uh, happened about 1977. And then uh, the work done uh, to get to the bottom of who might have indeed uh, uh, been the uh, uh, been the inventor of the hoax. Well, uh, in, uh, in 1936, this fellow was driving his car with uh, uh, a woman friend, and he had a flat tire. And this was 
out in Marin County and he pulled over to the side to change the tire and they were um, close to a hill where a lot of people hike. So they climbed through the, the barbed wire fence and hiked up the hill and they came to a flat area. I've looked at it on the map and looked at photos that were taken right after. And there was a, a cairn of stones stacked up there against a, a natural outcrop. And he started throwing stones down the hill, this fellow. And pretty soon he pulled out this plate, this piece of metal. And he thought, well, what's this? He didn't throw it down the hill. He actually put it in his car and it knocked around in his car for a while. He thought he could repair his his car frame with it, you know, if it was ever needed. And then his roommate said, hey, that looks like uh, Drake written on it. That that could be something. Why don't you call up this professor at Berkeley, Herbert Bolton, who's been calling out and telling everyone to go to Marin County and look for Drake's plate because he's it's got to be there. And wow, if you found that, that would be just amazing. So he called up Bolton. This was in 1937. He called up Bolton on the phone and said, I have this thing I found on the hill. And Bolton later said, I knew just from a description exactly what it was. But that that was sort of suspicious to me when I read that. Anyway, so he uh, brought it in and they uh, immediately declared it was uh, Drake's plate the next day at uh, in in Bolton's class, he had a rousing speech and he said, we all must go out to Marin County. And he let him out of the doors like he was leading a 76 trombone uh, parade or something. I mean, he was just trumping it up way up and it got a lot of press and a lot of attention and all that. So um, but uh, he he uh, Bolton. Uh, gave gave the finder a whole bunch of money, which was this was during the Depression. I think it was over three thousand dollars and it really raised eyebrows. And they said, oh, my God, this amount of money, it must be real if they're giving him that amount of money for it. So that lent a lot of credibility to the story. But in in the background, Bolton wasn't sending it in to get analyzed. He was rejecting offers of help on it, even from England. And uh, various scholars were weighing in on it and demanding a photo. And Bolton didn't even provide a good photograph of the artifact for months and months and still was saying it's very important and we're studying it. But they weren't doing anything. They were just sitting on their hands. And uh, that was pretty suspicious to me. And so, uh, you know, but it, it changed the paradigm. It shut down Zelia Nuttall and uh, or her theory and Eva Taylor's continuing theory about the Northwest uh, uh, Coast uh, landing. And and then in 1977, they, they did a, an analysis of it. And James Hart, who was at uh, the Bancroft Library at the time, he he did a pretty good in-depth study of it. And he he found uh, a woman who said she was a witness. And so he called her in and he took two depositions from her. She said when when she was a little girl, about 12, that she she and her mom and dad went to visit a historian who lived on the hills uh, behind the Berkeley campus, University of California at Berkeley campus. And that uh, the, at this house, there were two little kids and 
uh, you know, her 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 dad went out in the garage with with a couple of other men and her mom and the wife of the house uh, had tea or something. And she was supposed to watch the two little kids that lived there. But she got bored with that and went out to the garage to see what the men were doing. Now, I do that or I would have done that. And I'm sure I did that when I was a kid. It's much more interesting to see what's going on in the garage. So she went out to the garage and she saw her dad and this historian who lived there laughing about a plate of brass and talking about how how it would never fool anyone. And uh, and and but then they, you know, were talking about the technical issues of it. So on the way home, her mom was like, this was a terrible thing. It's it's this is not the right thing to do. And um, and uh so uh, within a year or two, her mom and dad divorced and um, her dad laughed about it actually a few years later when the plate was found, but she didn't, she didn't ever mention it or blow anybody's cover or anything. So in 1977, she was, uh, you know, pretty old, but she told she told uh, the the Berkeley James Hart, the the Berkeley uh, investigator about this, and so this was right up at the run up to the uh, 400th anniversary. And in San Francisco, they had all these celebrations planned. They were gonna the the Golden Hind two replica was coming to uh, visit. They had. Uh, um, speeches were given, a parade, all sorts of celebration. It was called Drake Year in California in, in 1979 to celebrate this anniversary. But if if James Hart came out and said, oh, well, the plate of brass was a hoax by a historian and uh, uh, oh, that would have embarrassed California right then. And it was getting international attention. Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip were um, uh, informed about it. And they they were sent a a a, a replica of the brass plate. Now, this would really have embarrassed California if it came out that the plate of brass was made by a historian. So James Hart kind of kept it under wraps and um from his notes in his files that I've looked at that are at the Bancroft, I'm pretty sure he figured it out, but didn't want to say anything. And he, he probably didn't know the Zelia Nuttall connection and didn't understand the whole thing. But it the plate, I figured out, was being made right when Zelia was making her promulgations that Drake was on the Northwest Coast. And I think he was going to launch it then, but then he shut Zelia down. But then Eva Taylor started coming up with the same kind of things. And so that's when it was released. And it was sort of a I think it was an Easter egg hunt that he put out there and said, go look, go look, go out there. I'm sure it's out there. Oh, yeah, here it is. That's so, that's what I'm thinking. So, well, it, it and, and the details of the story in your book are great. And there's a whole lot of other stuff, which uh, we need not go into now. I mentioned some of it in the podcast episode. I know that I'll be in, uh, including the, your, your work around the Dare Stone. I don't want to distract us from the, from the Drake story just yet. So, so just to recap the timeline. So until about 1908, it was pretty plausible to think Drake landed in Kelsey. Then Zelia Nuttall finds her trove in the archives of Mexico City, and she, she publishes New Light on Drake, through the Hacklett Society in 
1912 or 13, something like mm-hmm. that. Uh, at the same time, the I think there was like the Panama Colombian expedition or something like that. Was it was a huge exposition in the Bay Area, very focused on Drake, uh, very focused on. Uh, the new world, if you will. Right, and 1915, yeah. 1915. And uh, Zelia Nuttall, uh, at this point, has written her monographs, which includes presumably a bunch of ethnographic information. And she ma- she presents a paper at this time. Um, but it, uh, Herbert Bolton, uh, we believe, uh, on the basis of a fair amount of evidence you lay out in your book, um, suppresses or cuts off any ability for Zelia Nuttall to, to publish her paper. Um, every time it's accepted provisionally, it gets turned down with no explanation. The whole thing's very suspicious. And Bolton, uh, people should remember, uh, was a big gun, right? He, he, he did his year as president of the American Historical Association, which doesn't happen to just anybody. And he was a very noted historian of the American Southwest. Um, we have quoted him on this podcast in some of our discussion of the Spanish mm-hmm. explorations of the Southwest. Uh, so he was a pretty legitimate, he was a very legitimate historian when he wasn't um, playing his pranks, to put it in the most uh, charitable possible light. So, so your hypothesis is at some point, Around 1915, he cooked up this plan uh, regarding the plate and then probably set it aside when Nuttall threw in the towel and went back to Mexico. And then, of course, she died. And now uh, there was no real threat to the Drake in California story until Eva Taylor comes and the uh, publications start rolling out in the 30s. And so the plate gets resurrected in all likelihood, um, planted by one of his co-conspirators. There's this sort of prankster group called the Clampers, which you discussed. <laughs> uh, and uh, it gets discovered in 1936. Nuttall's gone and it seems to lock down the case for Drake having landed in California until the late 1970s. Then the plate is eventually revealed as, as a hoax. At some point that was published, I think, by 1980, if I recall, being yeah. around. So it gets published. So we've actually known the plate was a hoax for 45 years or something like that. And yet the case for, you know, the, 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 the sort of dominant view is that Drake landed in California because no one has come along lately to push. No one in the U.S., a bunch of the English have, Samuel Balf did mm-hmm. his book, uh, but no one in the U.S. has come along to, to really pound away at the story until, until you have. Um, so, so you establish the affirmative case for Drake on the Oregon coast. You then, uh, in these uh, several chapters, tease through the mystery of the uh, Drake's plate uh, and the hoax around it. Um, what has been uh, the reaction to this from California, the Californians today? 
So including on the one hand scholars and on the other hand sort of populist or popular California boosters, what, what feedback have you gotten, um, reception have you received? Well, I, I gave a talk at Berkeley for the anthropology department, and that was well received. The anthropologists seemed to understand my lines of evidence, but some of the historians, um, especially the boosters who who um, really promote one bay or another, um, they have not accepted, and they they're on they they go on Wikipedia and call me marginal and. And uh, my theories are fringe and that, uh, you know, that I don't know what I'm talking about. And I'm just a, a Oregon patriot or some such thing like that. But this this question is been in the domain of these proponents of one bay or another. And so it's a quagmire that most professional historians don't even want to dip their toe in. Uh, so there's been no really critical analysis of the big context of the question and, you know, a discussion of the social and cultural importance of the voyage. I mean, there's significant Native American and Black stories associated with the voyage. Drake had four Black crewmen, including a woman named Maria, who, who was pregnant and uh, who he dropped off in an island uh, after he crossed the Pacific. Um, and the Native American stories are very rich and interesting, and they reflect um, this, you know, this first contact between a European group and the Native Americans uh, on the coast. And uh, it's just very fascinating, it, all the detail that Drake and his uh, chaplain, who also wrote, uh, went into about what was happening at the landing. I mean, they were here, they were at the, this bay for many weeks. Um, and uh, I, I'd really like uh like a conference or something in California for them to really look at what I've found, or I'd I'd like I'd like maybe the San Francisco Chronicle to review my book and have a discussion about it. But the, I'm just kind of um, you know no one's really picking up on it, and when they are, they're just uh, dismissing it before they even look at it in California. But in in Oregon, I've gotten some great book reviews from. Stephen Dow Beckham and Tom Conley and other historians and archaeologists here. And there's a groundswell here uh, in Oregon that, you know, I'm on to something. But uh, it hasn't hit, hasn't broke in California yet. Uh, and I'm just getting rocks thrown at me by the, the amateur uh, booster groups who, you know, they give tours of Drake's Bay and, you know, it's part of their whole club scene. And if Drake wasn't there, then their club doesn't mean anything. So, so that's what's happening. And I don't, I don't know. I don't see, I don't see it changing right away. But you know, bit by bit. Well, I have. I guess I have a, a series of reactions. One is, um, as I said, uh, I very much enjoy. I enjoyed your book, and I, I recommend to my listeners, if you've liked the episodes we've done on Drake, um, the the whole account of the uh, famous voyage up until uh, the Pacific Northwest and the deconstruction of where he went, why he went, uh, and all the rest is uh, is very well done. 
as is your detective work around uh, Bolton and his acolytes and what they may or may not have done, which mm -hmm. I view as a um, uh, an extreme case of weaponizing history, that being a topic very familiar to my listeners as well. That's a particularly strange such case. Um, I, I do um, uh, have a couple of other observations. One is I wish uh, that more people in California or anywhere else would be interested in topics like this. I suspect now interest in Drake in California is largely the province of hobbyists, whereas even 50 years ago, major celebrations were being, rightly or wrongly, planned around the anniversary of his arrival on the West Coast. Uh, so I sort of, as a, as a history podcaster, do wish there were more of that. Um, but it, nevertheless, uh, and it, it's also uh, hard to see what the broader implications are uh, between uh, California and Oregon um, uh, for history in general. It might have been significant had there been a territorial dispute between the English and the Spanish, but there never was. So we don't know what the broader implications might have been, whether Novo Albion and McLean would have had any probative weight because it never unfolded in some to it, you know, at any point where it was necessary. Um, let's let's talk about uh, something that I think is curious about this landing and maybe what it says about the sort of person that Drake became as his as his career, if you will, uh, developed. I thought it was remarkable that this English crew spent, you know, five to 10 weeks, depending on which account we look at, uh, on the coast, in the presence of the Indians of the region, whichever Indians, um, and, and no fighting broke out. There doesn't seem to be any... Uh, description of, you know, perfidy, shooting, you know, any of the things that seem to have characterized almost all the other first encounters, if you will, between Europeans and uh, indigenous North Americans. Um, obviously, you know, the Spanish in Florida, in the Southwest, got in lots of, you know, violent confrontations from the very beginning. Uh, the English uh, from Virginia to Maine and Newfoundland, uh, similar such encounters. Yet Drake sits there on the West Coast for more than a month uh, interacting with these people. And there's no suggestion of violence, misunderstanding, or anything else. Do you have any thoughts on that and why it remains so peaceful? Um, it, was, it was because of Drake. He, um, he was very critical of Spanish cruelty. He thought that they treated the Native Americans and the, the Cimarrons or the Maroons very badly. 
And um, he partnered with the Cimarrones in Panama. And uh, he he was just struck with their humanity and, and how inhumane the Spanish were in comparison. So Drake prided himself on his humane treatment of of uh, of the Native Americans, the Cimarrons, and the Spanish and Portuguese prisoners that he captured during his voyage. I mean, he he fed them at his own table, and um, he had this vision or this ideal that the English uh, would be conquerors, but they would do credit to England um, by bringing to the Native people England's particular type of Christian um, uh, Christianity, this Protestant book of prayer type of Christianity, which he thought was much more progressive and humane than Catholicism. And um, so in this bay on the Northwest coast, I believe where the natives had never met the Spanish, Drake ordered his men that there be no breach, he quote, breach of the peace and that they would meet the people with gifts. And and liberally giving them gifts, good and necessary things. So that was his mode. And if there was a breach of the peace, it wasn't recorded. And there and Francis Fletcher was the chaplain on the voyage, and he and Drake did not uh, get along. Um, at one point, Drake shackled him to uh, uh, to a place on the on the ship because he was a liar and didn't like him and. He shook his shoe at him and all this thing. Anyway, so Fletcher made a point of of uh, writing up everything that was discreditable to Drake. And and Fletcher didn't write anything about uh, any negative thing that happened when they were at the landing. In fact, he just talked about the people and how they actually worshipped Drake. And Drake kept saying, don't worship me, please don't. And so I don't think there was a breach of the peace when Drake was here. But then the people thought he was some sort of God because they had never seen anyone. I mean, he showed up. Uh, in the ship, probably blew off his cannons. Um, I go into this in my book, but he um, they probably thought he was the god Thunder because he fit sort of the parameters of what they thought Thunder would be like, um, you know, with fire and loud sounds. And so yep. Thunder was part of uh, their pantheon of gods. And uh, so they treated him uh, as, uh, as, as the god Thunder. And, um, you know, they would burn sacrifices to him, even though he was standing there, because that's what they did with thunder. They burned stuff so that it would go up in the smoke and be transmogrified into his uh, gift. Um, so there was a there was a lot of misunderstanding at the landing. But um, but Drake, uh, Drake kept the peace and made sure his men kept the peace. And also they had a woman with him. They had Maria, who was uh, um, just either newly pregnant or, you know, she probably gave birth a few months later. We're not sure. But um, uh, uh, she might have moderated things as well. We we don't know what her agency was, and that's always a question. But um, I, I think maybe that uh, um, Drake was a had a strong presence and he was very religious and he he might have actually made sure that no one uh that that no one breached the peace because if they did uh 
Drake would punish them. And, and Drake actually uh, put down a mutiny and killed one of the mutineers earlier in the voyage. And so they knew to fear him and to obey him. I mean, he was he was the man in charge. So uh, this whole landing occurred only a few months after the encounter on the island of Mocha in the South Pacific of Chile. And there, uh, the Golden Hind had landed after having been uh, whacked around in storms for weeks coming out of the Strait of Magellan. And after one initial encounter on the island, um, and you relate this in your book, after one initial encounter on the island, uh, the Indians there essentially ambushed them when they went back to uh, when, the, when Drake's crew went back to get fresh water. And, um, several people were wounded, uh, including Drake uh, in the face with an arrow. Um, and um, a couple of men died, as I recall, and they, yeah. they, managed, they managed to get back to the ship. And uh, by the accounts, the crew clamored to uh, get revenge on, on these Indians who had sort of uh, ambushed them. They wanted to rake the beach with cannon fire. And uh, by the account, anyway, uh, Drake uh, refused to do it, uh, believing that the Indians were only treating the English this way because they thought they were Spanish, which I think I chuckled when I read it, but uh, it seems <laughs> that Drake was a believer in the black legend of Spanish uh, perfidy, if you will, whether that's true or not is a, its own long discussion among historians today. But that seems to me to, that story very much supports the idea that he had conditioned his crew uh, to restrain themselves in the dealings with indigenous peoples in the region. That to me backs up that whole line of reasoning very effectively. Yeah, Um, I think that's true. Though it, it, to, um, to like Drake or not to like Drake goes in and out of style all the time over the years. And there's even a book written about it. And, um, uh, I, I'm on the side that I think Drake was uh, a, a pretty good guy. I'd sure like to have met him. I think he was maybe hard uh, if he was your if he was your captain sometimes, but I think he was humane, and I think Zelia Nettle thought that too because. Um, Azelia in her book recorded all these numerous episodes of how Drake was a gentleman and so forth. And um, but in the in some of the accounts that were written by Francis Fletcher, the chaplain who didn't like Drake, he made sure that, you know, Drake was seen in the worst light possible Um, because he was he was very upset at the mutiny that Drake actually killed someone hung hung a man for mutiny. He uh, the Francis Fletcher was the chaplain. He didn't think that was a good thing to do. Maybe he he liked the fellow that that got hung. But um, Thomas Thomas Doughty or Dowdy Dowdy yeah Doughty or Dowdy. So and, yeah. um, so Fletcher. You know, I mean, even in Drake's time, people were divided. Was Drake good? 
this one fellow wrote that uh, Drake was despised because uh, of his base birth and and low education and he, that he walked around ostentatiously, vaingloriously boasting in his high, haughty and insolent way and and. But if you had if you had been the second person to circumnavigate the world and had uh, braved uh, Magellan Strait and then uh, been blown south and all around <laughs> for 57 days and some of the worst weather that the planet can throw at you and then sailed north and captured more Spanish silver than anyone has ever seen <laughs> in an English ship. And then made it all the way back to England with a healthy, generally healthy crew. Not all of them arrived, but um, I, I think you'd, you'd be proud of yourself, too. And so for for some of the elites and high class people in England to look down their nose at him after he accomplished all this, um, you know, Drake probably just thought they were ridiculous and petty and um not understanding what what he's actually done for the realm. And so there was all of this. So there's always going to be this divide. Was Drake a good guy? Was he a bad guy? Yeah. His uncle was a slaver and he was on some of these slaving missions. Does that, you know, blacken him out right away? Get a, get you know, get him off of our uh, radar. We don't want to even talk about him. Well, I don't well, know. I think I think on that, my listeners know what I think on that. I mean, I think Drake is... Drake's um, the type of person that we have a hard time um, getting comfortable with today. He's, I think, a story of personal redemption. He was mm -hmm. born into he was born into a literate, educated, and pretty poor family, although with some influential relatives. You know, his father was a you know a Protestant preacher. Uh, but he grew up under difficult circumstances and naturally uh, being related to the Hawkins of Plymouth of the West Country, uh, it shouldn't be surprising that as a young man, he would go to sea with them. And uh, they indeed, you know, kind of were the first of the English uh, slave trading pirates. Now, England, English after them in the 1570s, nobody did it again for England for another 60 or 70 years. So it's not like they set in motion a whole industry. Um, they, were right. really an, uh, they were really an outlier case. But uh, in 1573, leading his own mission in, uh, as you say, Panama, you know, he fell in with Pedro and... Um, Diego. You know, uh, and Diego. Uh, Diego, who worked with him, Pedro, who is the man who took him uh, supposedly to the lookout where he uh. could see both the Caribbean and the South Sea uh, at the same time. And uh, uh, by all accounts, his behavior toward uh, Blacks he encountered changed thereafter. Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, But this is not always believed or accepted. Uh, and uh, you still see famous historians writing sort of suggestions that Drake was uh, mistreating uh, 
blacks or enslaving them long after that fact, but there's actually no evidence of it and quite the opposite. There are numerous encounters when uh, having uh, had the experience in 1573 in Panama, he was very much the opposite, that he uh, treated blacks as he treated the whites and his crew, all the rest of it. So, uh, you know, I think then the question becomes, you know, how uh, are we able um, to think about that historically? And that's something that will be argued about to the end of time, I'm sure. Uh, but I agree. I would like, uh, it would be fascinating to meet Drake and get some questions answered. Uh, I think uh, you know the, share that. The, the cover of my book is a painting probably of Drake that was only found, I think, in 2015 or 16. And it just brings into clarity uh, what Drake looked like. I mean, he's got this look that, you know, could, you know, send you quivering. I mean, and he's, but he looks very important and royal and self-important. And uh, I think just looking at that por portrait, you can get a feel for the man, just, just looking at it. And, and in a class-bound society, self-made men were very few. And not only was Drake self-made, but he became, obviously, after the famous voyage, he became an advisor to Elizabeth, member of parliament for a while. And he uh, did as much as anybody uh, to defeat the Spanish Armada. Yep. Um, and, you know, that cemented his place as, you know, one of uh, uh, England's very greatest uh, naval figures. It's a country with quite a few of them. So anyway, is yeah. there anything else you would like to say? Do you want to tell us what you're working on now before we wrap up? I'm, I'm working on a follow-up article about the hoaxes, the plate of brass and the dare stone. And I found some new evidence about how those were launched and how they were planned and Look forward to that uh, coming out in a few months. Excellent. Uh, and you've got a, do you have a publisher for that piece yet? Or? Um, the, the University of California Journal wants to look at it. The editor, right. editor requested it, so I'm assuming that it'll be published. Unless it's, I don't know, maybe they won't like it. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe dark figures from, you know, California... Academic mafia will suppress it, and you'll read yeah. the Nettles story. <laughs> yeah, that could happen. That could happen. Well, uh, we look forward to that, and uh, we can talk about whether that that uh, we'll we'll see what you have there. I love these historical mysteries, and maybe it'll warrant another episode. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, Thanks, for Jack. appearing, and uh, here's to hoping that we made this work with recording and everything else. But uh, if it, if we did succeed in doing that, uh, I will uh, should have it up in the next few days. So I'll let you. Know. Okay. Well, if if it if it didn't work. Um, we can try it again, and I'll try and uh, have my tech person over here to help me with it. <laughs> well, it's probably be kind of stilted if we do it again, but sure thing. I appreciate the offer, and let's see if it goes. All right. Well, in any case, okay. Uh, thank you. Okay. Thanks, Jack. See ya. Bye-bye. Yep, bye-bye. Well, apart from the poor audio on my end, I'd say that came off very nicely, especially for Drake fans, as I know many of you are. 
I again recommend Melissa's book, Thunder Go North, which displays her considerable investigational skills far more clearly than one podcast interview could possibly do. If you do buy it, consider clicking through the Amazon link in the episode notes on the podcast website. In addition to a teeny-weeny tip, always welcome, that will tell me how many books we sold. Always good to brag about. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. I love getting emails from you guys. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And you can buy all the books I mentioned through the links in the episode notes on the website and follow me on Twitter to stay up to date and sample my musings on mostly history-related topics. Until next time.